Ich bin nicht da, weil ich hier bin. Ich muss hier sein. I am not there, because I am here. I have to be here. And that is the thought for the week, coming from German for Artists by Stina Marie Jakobsen. There you go, that was my thought. And it ties nicely into our topic of the week, which is AI, because I, I thought that was kind of quite similar to the cogito ergo sum argument. I think, therefore I am. Welcome to this week's episode of The Great Unknown. I am James Harris. And I am Wolf O'Neill. We are on Facebook and Instagram at The Great Unknown Pod. You can email us at thegreatunknownpod at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter at Great Unknown Pod. Follow us just for some more interesting little bits of follow up from the episode. Photos of Bicentennial Man. Yes. Starring Robin Williams. Controversial. Is he your favourite AI? Nope. I can't believe you forgot Crichton. And Bender. Oh, yeah, Bender from Futurama, of course. He is the best. Okay, so uh, since since the last time we spoke to you, I have been at Ben Nevis. It was very enjoyable. We were talking about mountains on the last episode. And what was the, the best thing about your trip? Just the scenery, just the actual views. I'd been snubbing Ben Nevis for ages because I was just sort of thinking, oh, it's just the biggest mountain. It's going to be easy to get up. Loads of people up there. What's the point? And then I got to the top and you could see miles in every single direction we're really lucky that it wasn't in any cloud but it was deep snow and it was beautiful just in every direction just utterly spectacular i'm very um, jealous it was a really really nice mountain actually it's, it's, it's a serious serious mountain we we yomped up uh the tourist track and then went down the far side on the cmdrx which is quite exciting and then we threw a bag off the side of it and had to go and get that out of a ravine which was good fun Oh, yeah, and we found a whiskey distillery at the end, which was great. Um, we put a photo of that on our did Instagram as well. Did you buy any whiskey? I did in the pub afterwards. It cost okay. me 11 quid for just a shot, but it's really nice whiskey. So, And the guy had been explaining it to me for the whole time. It's this distillery where they don't have any computers or machines whatsoever. The stills are all run on valves, basically. So this guy who was just, we were just walking through this distillery because that was the end of the walk and we just saw a sign for him. Great, yeah. And he was just in there working. And we just sort of waved at him, and he waved us in. His name was Derek, so thank you, Derek. Um, it was very kind of you to show us around. And he was just explaining to us the whole process and the fact that the place is staffed 24-7, and it's just guys like him who just have the knowledge. It's complete artwork how they make this whiskey. They just know, and they just adjust all these valves. There's something like 90-odd different valves that all do different things, and the whole process is just monitored by them. And actually, it's made with the stream that comes off Ben Nevis, so cool. it's actually made with Ben Nevis snow melt, which is incredible. So that's the Ben Nevis distillery, Ben Nevis whiskey. It's expensive, but it's really nice. So definitely worth it. Well, if we go to another hike up there, then maybe we can go try that out. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the sad thing I think about Ben Nevis, we talked about, a little bit about rubbish on being left on mountainsides. There's a an emergency shelter hut on the top of Ben Nevis. And we went to go and take a little look inside. Absolutely incredible thing. Must you know, It's saved people's lives because you get up there, you're in a blizzard, someone's injured or something, you shelter in there, you'll be safe. It's an incredible thing to have there. But we went inside the shelter. It's just covered in litter. Like People are just left behind all sorts of like sushi packets from Tesco's and stuff like that. It's, it's just... And it smelled of weed as well. You know, I've got nothing against weed, right? But in an emergency shelter heart, like if you've got to sleep in there to try and save your life, it's not really... I don't know, maybe it helps. I don't know. Yeah, it just kind of feels like a premeditated plan to not 
pack out what you were taking up with you. Yeah, it just felt like it had been abused. And that was a real shame. There was just rubbish everywhere. So we took some of it down. Anyway, so that, that well, was that. Uh, but it, That made me think about the news story that a lot of us were reading this week about the problems on Everest. But specifically the point that I will raise is that I saw photos of a Sherpa who had to keep going up Everest to pack up all of the rubbish from the top of the mountain to bring it back down. And I was like, can you comprehend that as your like, cleaning job? Climb to the <laughs> tallest point on planet Earth just to collect a bag full of rubbish and take it back down again. Whew, hope they're getting paid a lot. Actually, it might just be voluntary. I have no idea, but that's the hell of a job one way or the other. That, that means you must have already climbed Everest multiple times so that you're comfortable doing it. This is not your first trip up. Most people do it once in their life. The Sherpa does it so often that now they just go home and collect rubbish. Crazy. Phenomenal. But also, okay, so I understand that you might have to leave stuff behind in order to save your life and get off that mountain before you die. Because what we've seen this week is loads of people are dying up there. Yeah, it's been a really bad season by all accounts. But at the same time, how can you carry something to above 8,000 feet and just leave it? No one else can come and pick that up for you. You can't pass the buck on that one. Well, it's what we talked about last week is the amount of people going up Everest as well is having a dramatic effect on it. And so you showed me there were some pictures in the news of just an absolute logjam of people on the top of Everest just waiting. It looks like the, the Northern top. Line. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Maybe not as hot. But there was loads of people up there because they only had a few clear days. And so everybody went on the same day and people ended up dying because they got stuck in with all of these people there. It's it's not a place where you want to be in rush hour. No, it was honestly really bizarre. And I think that's why the photo captured the imagination of all of us, because we couldn't believe it. Yeah, absolutely. A queue on Everest at the very, very summit. And we love a queue. We're English, but not that. No, thank you. Maybe that made me think of Denali, perhaps, would be the one I'd go for instead, or somewhere in South America in the Andes. Probably. I really want to visit the Grand Teton National Park and climb that mountain range. Oh, yeah, you sent me a picture of that. It looks amazing. I think that'd be incredible. Where's that? It's really close to Yellowstone. So I'm going to say Wyoming. Well, speaking of North America, we actually had uh, someone, a friend of ours called Michaela got in touch to tell us about the grouse grind. We were asking about favourite mountains and things like that. And the grouse grind in Vancouver is this thing that apparently is quite a big thing to do if you're in Vancouver and you just leg it up this mountain as quickly as you possibly can and leg it back down again. And the record time is something absurd and just people are absolutely sprinting up and down mountains i don't know how there's not more falls or anything like that but apparently it's a big exercise thing to do so people just go and do that if you live in vancouver great i'd love to have a mountain in london we could do that i thought it was going to be a bit like cheese rolling but it's a bottle of famous grouse and there's <laughs> rolling down this hill that everyone chucks after it, and if you get to the bottom first you get to drink it i would happily chase after a bottle of famous grouse that's rolling down the hill free whiskey <laughs> but it, it does remind me about some of those speed runs up and down mountains like mont blanc where they've done the whole thing in like four hours, from base to summit and back into the village. I can't even run for 30 minutes. How do you run up and down a mountain? Oh, God, the fell runners we saw in Scotland were incredible. There's a thing, it's it's like a double loop. I can't remember exactly what it's called. I'll try and find the name. And there's a double loop that covers the three basically biggest mountain ranges around the Ben Nevis, kind of Fort William, Glencoe area. And it's a thing to do is just to run the circuit 
and the person has set in, there's someone there's a woman who set a new world record for, for men or women and she's like 50 odd or something like that and she did a double circuit so she did it both ways round in like less than a day i think it took us two plus days to do like one of those three ranges <laughs> i mean crazy and we saw a few people up there just absolutely pelting and then be most of the way around a circuit that we're doing by the time we're sort of just having breakfast anyway on to this week's episode and this week we are going to be talking about one topic in particular and the topic this week is artificial intelligence wolf why are we talking about artificial intelligence we both mentioned voice assistants yeah i mean we were talking about the film her on the first episode which arcade fire did the score for i just found it a very interesting film about the differences between ai and humans but in a way that's not adversarial it's not humans against machines or machines against humans it's just a more simple life tale and because in her the os is kind of like the voice assistants that we have now see more advanced there are issues that we've been looking up related to that in the modern world that i think we've both been thinking about in general and it just kind of worked out and this was where we wanted to go so we're going to be looking at the voice assistants again gendering of machines, the modern state of AI, future and moral and human ramifications of it, and how great your understanding is required from, from all of us, and how we're going to have to adapt to this and understand it and learn what role it plays in our lives. A key thing is that this technology is advancing all the time and is involved in so much of our lives, whether we know it or not. And I think if, as a population, if we don't understand it, it will get ahead of us and problems will appear down the line that we aren't ready for. I've found, I've learned so much researching this, and also found out what I did already know as well. There's a really good uh, exhibition on at the Barbican at the moment, which we went to. Yep, And we would recommend morning. other people go to. If you if you find this pod interesting, it's got even more of the history, it's got actual robots to interact with. I'm glad with. it's got more than what we can come up with in this <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah. For a, like probably a multi-million pound exhibition at the Barbican, you'd hope so. It's got a robot dog you can pet. It's got all sorts of other robots that interact with you, things that are trying to read your emotions, all sorts of really interesting stuff. Definitely go along. So let's get into it. We just want to give an introduction to AI, see what's happening, see what may happen in the future. And we thought we'd better start with some definitions. So if you want to give us the definition just of artificial intelligence to start with. So artificial intelligence is the study of agents that perceive the world around them, form plans, and make decisions to achieve their goals. It obviously has foundations in mathematics, philosophy, linguistics, neuroscience, etc. And AI is the kind of larger encompassing field with which other sub-areas like robotics, machine learning fit into. So within the field of artificial intelligence, you have machine learning, which... The, the goal of which is to enable computers to learn on their own. So cybernetics as opposed to AI, and this is a definition according to the exhibition at the Barbican today, cybernetics is the study of social, technological and cultural systems. It looks at how different forces are connected together using concepts such as feedback and self-organisation. Perfect. I think a few other key terms which are worth knowing. Okay, uh, I want to talk cyborgs and robots. So actually, I think Wikipedia has actually got a great definition of a cyborg. It's a cybernetic organism. So it is a blend of artificial intelligence and organic matter. So there are, there's a guy, for example, now Neil Harbison, who's got an antenna 
coming out of his head that's actually wired into him. So he's technically a cyborg. Cool. Uh, and what's an android, James? Pass. <laughs> so uh, an android is a robot with a human appearance. So usually in the movies they have like that human skin over the top of them, but there's a robot underneath. So what's the overall definition of robot then? A robot is a machine that is able to replicate certain human movements and functions. So technically an android is a robot, but not every robot is an android because not every robot has to look like a human. Perfect. And where did you find your definition of robot? Uh, they were just the base Google definitions. <laughs> just to clarify. Fabulous. Okay. A key thing that we're going to come across called the AI effect. The exact standard for technology that qualifies as AI is a bit fuzzy, and interpretations change over time. The AI label tends to describe machines doing tasks traditionally in the domain of humans. Interestingly, once computers figure out how to do one of these tasks, humans then have a tendency to say that it wasn't really intelligence, and that is the AI effect. That reduction in the intelligence of a machine so that it no longer appears as if it's AI and more just like a basic machine. So the AI, the AI effect is about our perception of yep. AI. And then you have artificial narrow intelligence, where they perform a very narrow defined task. And then the more important one is the artificial general intelligence, which is an artificial intelligence that can successfully perform any intellectual task that a human being can, including learning, planning, and decision-making under uncertainty, Communicating in natural language, making jokes, manipulating people, trading stocks, or reprogramming itself. Essentially everything a human could do. And I think that's what most people probably think of when they think of AI. And that's probably our most essential definition because that feeds into all of the other things we've talked about. So AI is what is behind cyborgs, robots, androids, machine learning, everything. That's why we've titled the episode Artificial Intelligence. Okay, let's move on. So now we've done our definitions, we want to just give a brief overview of history and the cultural history of artificial intelligence. Yeah, where we are and how did we get here? So just to start out in our history of uh, AI, it's worth noting that automatons, essentially inanimate objects coming to life, that's another definition for you, that concept has been around since ancient times. We're looking at golems in... Jewish culture, that is something you'll see at the Barbican exhibition. And, for example, you've got Talos in Greek mythology, who's the bronze mechanical man. What we want to do, though, is focus perhaps more in on the current perceptions of AI. So we're looking from the sort of mid-19th century onwards, and when you start to get science fiction writing. And for me, the key one also is cinema. And in the 1920s, a film called Metropolis, made in Germany, and features a female robot, basically. I think it might be the first time that a robot is displayed on screen. Yeah, and it's kind of about class and all sorts of other things, but it's just worth noting that that was... If, if you want to start looking at the cultural perceptions of AI, you can go right back to there for certainly sci-fi and cinema. So that's sci-fi culture, but let's address a bit more of the history first. So choosing to be very selective and obviously knowing that we're going to miss a lot of things out... Um, I would suggest we begin with Alan Turing, who proposed the idea of if machines could think in his 1950 paper, Computing, Machinery and Intelligence, where he suggested the idea that machines might be able to use information like humans do to solve problems and make decisions. He then created the Turing test, which is designed to determine if a machine is capable of thinking like a human. Essentially, the test is there are these two people who are 
kept away from an investigator and they have to try and work out which of the two people is a machine and which is human and they're both working to kind of achieve their goal and although some people have claimed that they've beaten the Turing test uh, it's generally considered undefeated at the moment. The next key point is in 1955 John McCarthy coined the term artificial intelligence and then he hosted the first conference on it in 1956 at Dartmouth. Dartmouth in the States. Yes. Since this time, we've experienced massive flourishes in AI advancement, as well as two AI winters, which are periods of reduced funding and interest in AI. As machines have developed, as the technology has improved, we've been able to push advancements in AI to new levels. In 1997, the IBM Deep Blue won at chess versus the Grandmaster, and most recently AlphaGo defeated the world champion in Go. So Go Go is this kind of game of like many many. It's kind of like it looks like a chessboard, but sort of with just dots and lines, and it's just there's something like ten million yeah. whatever. There's like a huge amount of potential variations in comparison to chess. It's almost an infinite amount of possible moves that you could do. Exactly, yeah. Which is why it's so impressive that it's able to beat a human because you can't program all the possible moves into it so there's a huge amount of people who have been very important in development of ai but what we wanted to look at is what has been developed in ai which is we're looking at things like big data and how ai is used in the contemporary world so a few main examples is obviously tesla are building driverless cars they have to be able to identify road signs, um, changing conditions, anything you can possibly think of that a human has to analyze. They have to try and program and teach the machines to do that. We have voice assistants like Alexa or Siri or Cortana. There are translation apps on your phone. There are loads of algorithmic programs such as Netflix. Netflix uses AI to calculate what you it wants to suggest for you yep. based off of things that you've watched. And that works because... Everything that's on there is labelled, and then the labels are used in the algorithm to calculate what we want based on what we've selected. And you'll recognise that kind of AI from any kind of tagging on Twitter or anything like that. It just groups things together and then selects what it shows you, basically. That's all AI. AI is also used a lot in banking. It's used to determine who can get a loan, who should be getting insurance. It's involved in making suggestions for prison sentences based off of past history. These are some of the issues we're going to touch on a little bit later on and come back to. And maybe most frighteningly, it's involved in weaponry as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I also wanted to give a couple of examples myself of some things that we might think are quite positive. Um, so there's a lot of work being done on medical diagnostics. So a computer that can take a huge amount of variables and create a, di a diagnosis really quite quickly. Uh, that's going to be quite... That's quite a powerful thing that's happening at the moment also just there's a lot of interesting things that already exist that are out there like people are having chips implanted in them where they can have their um, bank card or their keys within their chip so you don't have to remember those things and you can't lose them so that's just the way that people are already modifying themselves with ai neuroprosthetics is a really positive one as well where people are having prosthetic limbs that are responding to their brain waves and that is a remarkable, remarkable field. And this kind of AI is really enabling humans to, to cope with a lot of the things we wouldn't have been able to in the past. Medical science is definitely one of the best uses for AI. And I think we're going to see really, really incredible advancements soon. 
I think uh, translation you mentioned as well, and it, I think we're not that far away from having real-time translation as well, almost like the Babelfish in Hitchhiker's Guide, which is wonderful. You just have it there, and you'd be able to speak with anybody in the globe that has their language programmed into this. So communication across the globe might be so much more possible really soon, which could be quite exciting, actually. So these are some of the some of the things that are happening. Um, some a little bit scarier, some just are already there now and just around us. Okay, so that's just given us some detail of some of the things, the real-life uses of AI at the moment. And then talking back on the cultural history of AI, I think the important imagination around AI has been built through films like Metropolis, which I mentioned just a moment ago. But then a huge impact has been made by films like 2001. Uh, that was a big, big one. And that was uh, written by Arthur C. Clarke, who was also in competition with Isaac Asimov for the greatest science fiction writer of all time. They apparently had an agreement in the back of a taxi where Asimov said he'd always say that the other guy was the better writer and Arthur C. Clarke would say the other way around. And yeah, it's some kind of strange gentleman's agreement. Very nice. Well, for a long period of time, especially in Western movies, artificial intelligence, robots, cyborgs, etc., were villains predominantly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That was for a that was for a long time. So you had Westworld and Yul Brenner and I think in obviously two thousand and one, uh, Hal is a bit of a villain. He's I can't do that, Dave. Yeah, and I was reading that his voice was so frightening that for about the next ten years, scientists couldn't use male synthetic voices on anything because it reminded everybody too much of how and they were convinced it was going to try and kill them. So they, <laughs> they had to completely do away with male synthetic voices. In the last few years, we've had a few films about AI that have had some challenging ideas within them. So Ex Machina, Her, we already talked about. And over the last 20, 30 years, we've also got Ghost in the Shell. That's a big one from Japan where there's human brains put into artificial bodies, essentially. And that's the human consciousness is the ghost within the artificial shell. We've started to care a little bit more about what the machines might be thinking or feeling and their identity crises and how they could positively interact with humans. And in many ways, they're often depicted as being subservient. So we often see them as kind of friendly, supportive counterparts to the main heroes in whatever stories we're watching. And I think that's a trend that probably goes back to Blade Runner primarily. That's the first one that I can think of that really interrogates that what it is to be human, what it is to be artificial, and the rights that are given to those different people. Or and it's obviously based off of excellent writer Philip K. Dick's book. So, what well, the, the, I mean, the the best thing about Blade Runner is the idea that the characters don't know whether they're human or replicant, and they have this Turing type test, the Voigtkampf test, where they have to try and figure out people's identities because they so perfectly replicate humans yeah and it's raising the issue of what therefore is it to be human and, um, and what and why do they deserve death like why do they deserve shorter lives why are they filled with memories of lives they never had because they only exist for two or three years as workers on this on these external colonies but they're given entire backgrounds identities genders everything just to die after three years when their life kind of runs out. But they have all these memories of a life they never lived. Yeah, absolutely. Memory is a really key one, particularly in Ghost in the Shell. There's a cracking quote from that that says, There are countless ingredients that make up the human body and mind. Like all the components that make up me as an individual with my own personality. My thoughts and memories are unique only to me, 
and I carry a sense of my own destiny. Each of those things are just a small part of it. I collect information to use in my own way. All of that blends to create a mixture that forms me and gives rise to my conscience. So that's the question of what is it that creates consciousness and can individual machines that have their own journeys through whatever existence they have, does that create memory? And does memory and experience create individual personality and conscience? And that's possibly the end point of where we might reach later on in the episode. But I want to take it back a little bit uh, to Isaac Asimov's I, Robot. Uh, not the film. Let's ignore that. It's terrible. But the book, before we get on to the, the concepts of how machines might feel or think and what that might look like, Asimov's iRobot is actually looking at how machines function, things that might go wrong, and how humans might respond to that and solve that. And you've been investigating a bit about the data processing and how machines actually operate. Deep reinforcement learning is one of the most exciting areas of the deep learning research, and it's at the forefront of everything that's happening. And DeepMind's AlphaGo, surpassing humans in the game of Go, is achieved through deep reinforcement learning. If you create a goal that the machine has to work towards, so for example, get from A to B without hitting anything, it's almost a challengeable game, then you can challenge the machine to do that, and it can learn how to accomplish those tasks so it with go alpha go is there is a reward essentially a goal which is obviously to win and it will work towards that so the key thing with how machines function is how they're programmed to function essentially as best as i can figure it out we as humans and as scientists will figure out well, we're what, not scientists but you know just, just about human they will figure out What's the best solution to this problem? What type of problem do we have? Does it require compression? Does it require grouping of data? Does it require self-learning of any sort? Is it a vision problem? Is it an audio problem? They will then work out what type of learning that machine has to do and what type of programming is required in order for that piece of AI to solve that problem. So essentially AI is created by us to solve problems and we have to program it in a certain way to solve a problem in a certain way and there's a couple of finite ways in which it can do that yes and the more complex the problem the more this process of deep learning is involved and the more that machines are being pushed to new levels where humans can't program all of the data in the machine has to figure it out itself with very large data sets and learn from itself but all of that figuring it out is based on its initial programming. Yes. And the data sets that you give in will impact the result of what comes out. If you don't input a very large, varied database, you will have bias in the result at the other end. Artificial intelligence at this point in time doesn't figure out the problem ahead of it and then solve it. We present artificial intelligence with a specific problem and then give it specific programming to solve that problem and the programming is either to predict results based on what it already knows or to classify based on the information that it's given classified data that it's given is that correct yes but i do think that's only one section of it Fine. i don't i don't think there are just two options that it will be doing i think there are a lot more 
So, so that's super, say, for so example, supervised learning is literally just classification or regression. Unsupervised learning is clustering and reducing dimensionality. No idea what that means. Um, that's just compressing. You know when you compress a file? Yeah. You have a really large file and it won't let you send it in an email. Yeah. So sometimes you compress them down into an MP3 or you, you compress it down into another form of file that you can then send. Yep. Does that make sense? It's fucking magic though, isn't it? <laughs> okay, this is why we don't understand it. And this is a problem. But before you continue listening and you think to yourselves, hmm, do these guys know what they're talking about? Well, the answer's kind of no, so we've gone and got someone who does. <laughs> yes, so uh, we're going to play you an interview that I uh, was lucky enough to have with uh, Sheila Heyman, who's uh, just last week given a keynote speech at an AI conference in Phoenix. and Phoenix, Arizona? Phoenix, Arizona, yeah. And she was happy to tell us about her theories about how AI is operating in the world and the things we need to consider and what the future might be in her conception. So We won't tell you any more. We will let Sheila... Without Say that further herself. ado, here's Sheila. Hi. Hi, Sheila. How you doing? I'm all right. Fabulous. Thanks very much for having a chat. I wondered if I could just get you to sort of introduce yourself and then if you wanted to just give us an overview of your research and, and what you've been and what your sort of theories on AI are at the moment, if that's not too general. So my name is uh, Sheila Heyman and I'm a documentary filmmaker and now also a director's fellow at the MIT Media Lab in Boston. Um, I made my first film about robots in 1985 for the BBC, and I made a film called The Electronic Frontier when I was living in Los Angeles in the early 1990s. And Los Angeles, well, California at that point was known as the digital coast because it was it was right at the beginning of the digitalization, the digital world, and people were doing extraordinary things there with sounds and images. And, you know, I could sort of, somebody introduced me to the internet when there were only about 3,000 URLs, and I had this kind of light bulb moment and became fascinated by the fact that this was clearly going to change everything. So I made a film called The Electronic Frontier with the sort of subtitle, What Would the World Look Like with Information as Money? And we had in it the first email, which was inside Microsoft at that point. We had the computer in your pocket. Well, it didn't quite fit into your pocket, but I mean, it, it was everything was in one machine. Um, we had online computing and mobile computing in communities and, and uh, search engines, which at that point were rather endearingly called software angels because they had this um, incredible ability to travel uh, imperceptibly across vast distances, carrying and delivering messages. So, and we also had deep fakes, the precursors of deep fakes, which were sort of early digital digital video graphics, which you could use to sort of we use them in the film, for instance, to make um, Bill Clinton's hand shake during his inauguration, because and that was when we were making. So we had a lot of stuff that was quite prescient at the time, and um, I. Uh, have kind of, I don't know why, but I've just always been fascinated by the relationship between people and their tech. And um, I made other films about things like images of the future and why do people have the, have this sort of the same image of the future when, when you think, when you talk about it, why, where these kind of common tropes come from. I, I just kind of continued being interested. And then, you know, I, I had children and I did other things for a while, but as they got older and they started getting sort of very, very kind of attached to their screens and as I noticed them doing less and less physically and I started thinking about you know because I've always been very physically engaged in my life you know I like swimming and cycling and making things and sewing and baking and you know riding my bicycle and playing my violin and and so I got interested in thinking about the role of physical activity and in the you know 
health as well as the intelligence and the life of humans. And so it's all, it had all been sort of gradually building up. And then when I went to the lab in 2016 and they said, well, what do you want to do for your kind of big project? I found myself saying, I want to bring people back to their senses. And, and that sort of turned out to be, in effect, the direction that my work has taken. So I've spent pretty much the last three years now thinking about the fact that our intelligence, contrary to what everybody in the tech bubble seems to believe, is not an abstract thing. It isn't data processing that happens in magic meat in the skull and is then transmitted to your dead, lifeless body to carry out. Um, our bodies are actually active and intelligent. We have a brain in our guts. We have a brain in our heart. You know, our thoughts as well as our feelings are deeply affected by the biota in our guts, by the hormones that are constantly charging around us. It's completely impossible to have a human intelligence without a human body. And that's really the key um, message of the film I'm making now. There was one thing in your notes that I, I didn't fully understand that might relate to that, which was mind-body dualism. Is that essentially the, that, yeah, so that kind it, of... Yeah, exactly. So, you know, thousands of years ago, um, uh, in the time of Pythagoras, um, essentially this idea grew up that... It was the sort of it was the sort of version, I suppose, of the idea of the soul, you know, the desire that to have something that kind of lived forever. So the idea that they came up with was this was this one that that there's, that the mind is is basically spirit and essence, and it's separate from the body, and that the body is this kind of lifeless clay that constantly lets you down, you know, needs feeding, breaks, gets injured, won't leave you alone, you know, causes you all end, no end of trouble. And if one could only get rid of that and be you know, pure spirit and pure essence, then uh, life would be perfect. And, and um, this then became the idea of the immortal soul in Christianity and has filtered down into the idea of uploading in the wilder extremes of the tech bubble now. I mean, having said wilder extremes, Ray Kurzweil, who is the chief engineer at Google, uh, mm. believes in uploading and thinks he can put himself onto a chip and also seems to believe in that he um, all uh, essential functions of humans will be able to be done more efficiently by machines by 2029, which is kind of quite ambitious and slightly eyebrow-raising to anybody who actually knows about these things. <laughs> but it is amazing to me. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary to me that this, that this that the most elementary knowledge of neuroscience and biology has not filtered through into these people who are kind of determining the future of our cultures that they simply have no idea how much they don't know about the way human intelligence actually works. And as somebody said to me, you know, I've met plenty of computer scientists who think they understand the human brain, but I've never met a neuroscientist who does. Something you you talked about, which I've never come across before, which I thought was interesting, was Moravec's paradox? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. So this was basically 30 years ago um, in the relatively early days of AI research, just after the first AI winter, for people who are interested in these things. Um, a, a researcher called Hans Moravec, an AI researcher, was sort of you know, investigating what machines could do. And so they discovered, as we now know, that they have these machines have absolutely no problem memorizing the entire contents of a telephone directory or comparing 60 million scans to find out what a brain tumor looks like. But um, so they assume that because they could do these things that humans find very, very difficult, that they would find very easy the things that humans find easy, like tying shoelaces, getting a joke, parsing a sentence. But on the contrary, they discovered that 
all of these were absolutely impossible for machines to do. And the needle has barely moved on that today. I mean, 30 years on, you still cannot get um, a machine intelligence to understand the sentence. Uh, the trophy wouldn't fit in the suitcase because it was too small. It would have no idea whether it was a suitcase or a trophy that was too small because it has no model of the real world. It hasn't lived in the world. So it's not able to apply that to the parsing of sentences. Um, there is no robot on earth that can tie shoelaces and certainly not one that can tie shoelaces and carry a glass of water upstairs and hold a sheet of music and sort of stroke the forehead of a, of a sick child. I mean, anything that involves in acting in the human world, either because of the physical dexterity and versatility that that involves, or because of the understanding of what the world is, is completely impossible for a robotic or artificial intelligence and, and remains so. And again, you know, we are shown videos of the Boston Dynamics dog, which has to be programmed 61 times to produce a video of it doing something once. And we think, oh, God, this is absolutely amazing. Well, actually, no, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly primitive, you know. And, and again, you know, one of my favorite observations is if you look at films like iRobot or Ex Machina or, you know, any of those films that are sort of set in this robotic future, they're always set in this world where the surfaces are smooth and the lighting is flat and there are no kind of knickknacks and rugs and kind of pets wandering around. And, you know, this is basically because they would knock over the, um, you know, knickknacks and they would trip over the rugs and they would probably kick the pets. Um, you know, <laughs> they cannot they cannot maneuver in the real world, but also they can't understand the real world. I mean, for instance, you take the computer that everybody is so proud of, the DeepMind AlphaGo. You know, it beat a human at Go. Well, yes, but it, it would have no idea that it's playing Go. It would have no idea what Go is. It would certainly not be able to understand why people should do something like that simply for the joy of it because it has no concept of joy. And it, yeah, so, it probably wouldn't have any emotions about whether it's won or lost either. It, it, it literally doesn't know what it's doing. It's simply doing what it's been programmed to do. Okay, Wolf, so Sheila was saying that actually AlphaGo, just in, in our perception of AI, I think there's a huge element of fear because we've, we've brought that through in our culture. If you look at all of our sci-fi we're looking at robots, as I said earlier on, that are adversarial, that want to kill us, basically, or that have some malicious intent. And Well, famously in Terminator, obviously, when the machines become sentient, they destroy the humans and enslave them. Uh, actually, for me, I don't think this has any basis in any logic, because, as Sheila's saying, we can't input emotional data, we can't input sociological data and value. So economics is it might be numbers primarily but there is still we prescribe value to healthcare say or education and that defines how you you know put the budget towards that so teaching those judgments is very very complex and that involves a very human level of intelligence i think and irobot uh, looks exactly at these issues of where the one qt which starts thinking it pushes the humans out to one side and takes over it's not doing it because it wants to harm any human it's doing it because that's what the logic of the maths input that it's been it's been given actually tells it to do and i still think it's not something that we should be worried about but in order for a machine to have morals those morals have to be programmed so you have to tell a machine what is good and what is bad and define morality as a 
numbers system. If you were to do that, there would be times when the machine would do something that a human might consider amoral, but the machine would have calculated it as being the right choice to do. I think we enter very difficult territory and something that maybe we will not be able to pass if machines have that capability where they have to make moral decisions about what they should be doing. They can if you if you provide them the programming. But how can you quantify it? the human experience and the brain to transfer it? Bingo. That's the problem, I think. That's the uniqueness of human experience is you're never going to be able to replicate that in the way that a human being would because... As Sheila was saying, all of our senses come through the whole body. So just going to hand back to Sheila, and she's going to tell us a little bit about where she thinks the, the major kind of concerns with AI are at the moment and where that leaves us. It's all about rules, you see. It always has to be about rules. So, so you know, if you are a, comp- a company like Affectiva or, you know, one of these other companies that, that, that claim to be able to make computers that can read emotions, you can generate data and you can give it rules and you can say this combination of, uh, data points on a face means this and this combination of data points on a face means that it might be able to accurately uh, answer the question according to those rules it's never going to be able to know what that means how can it know what it means if it doesn't have a body how can anything that isn't fragile or fallible or mortal wasn't born and isn't going to die ever have empathy it's interesting it's to all about but it's all about you know poetry love and art they're all about mortality and loss and, you know, as is caring and teaching and nursing, they're all about the fact that we are never the same from one minute to the next. We change, we grow, we develop, and in the end, we die. And and that's the price we pay for the life that we have. But it's also the thing that enables us to empathize with each other. Yeah. And so we're, we're sort of discovering that we think, you know, in that, for example, that the issues that we have with AI essentially boil down to kind of our own human issues anyway. So any concerns we have about AI actually are probably more concerns about us in a way and the way in which we interact with it. But we just I think they're concerns about the degree to which we've we've believed what we've been told and we've been and we've we impute authority and power to them which they don't have. And we allow ourselves to be scared into thinking that that, you know, this is inevitable by people who have vast commercial interest in making us think so. I mean I'm not in any way I don't think we should diminish the threat. You know, we should we should play down the the threat. But I, what I do think is that it's 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 not re- is you know it doesn't need to be real if we don't let it be. And I think we need to reclaim the importance of the human, and we need to reclaim the real definition of intelligence before it's kind of you know uh, um, appropriated by these people who who have their you know very strong vested interest in making us believe it's something that it isn't and that machines have it that's that's really interesting you say that because when you talk to people and when we've spoken to people about doing this episode the first thing that people often come back to us and say oh isn't it terrifying and um look people like stephen hawking saying that ai could be the end of humanity and that's and people have this very apocalyptic view of it and we wanted to kind of look at that and understand perhaps a bit more beyond that of of what the problems actually are where we're at where we might be the good things and the bad things so and so i wondered what your view on on how how well, far is I technology mean, taking over and what i think it only can only take over if you let it you know it can only take over if you give it the power you know that those 737 max planes that crashed crashed 
because the Federal Aviation Authority in America gave back the um, uh, responsibility for vetting software in their planes to the plane manufacturers. So the Fox was put in charge of the Henna House. The code inside those planes was so complicated. It was black box code that nobody could read. It was impossible for them to know what all the potential dangers might be. But they nevertheless gave the plane's autopilot the authority to overrule the pilot. Now, Anybody would tell you that that's not a good idea because the plane can get it wrong. And what should have happened is that the pilots should have been able, first of all, they should have been trained to know what to do in an emergency. And second, they should have had the power to override the autopilot when the autopilot was clearly doing the wrong thing. Um, and in a similar way, you know, with driving with, with cars on the motorway, you know, we've got Elon Musk saying, oh, you know, all my cars can drive themselves, but you still have to have your hands on the steering wheel just in case. Well, there is no better way to make sure that somebody isn't paying attention than by telling them that they don't actually need to do anything. So all modern cars have synthetic feedback. The brakes are synthetic, the, the engine noise is synthetic, the steering is synthetic. Everything that you experience driving a modern car, modern American car, is synthetic. So you're completely unconnected from the reality of what is happening on the road. So if anything goes wrong, you're completely helpless to do anything about it. And you're not told. I mean, the, you know, because you're not engaged all the time, it's very easy for you to drift off. So when the emergency happens, you're not paying attention and you're not able to do it. You know, the Starbucks algorithm, again, you know, are we going to let it, are we going to let the Starbucks algorithm decide, you know, that somebody can't take Wednesdays off even if they've got a course or can't leave early because they've got to pick up their daughter from school or can't be there at a particular time when their mother needs to be taken to the doctor? Are we going to let an algorithm make those determinations? Amazon is already letting an algorithm fire workers with no recourse or remedy or right of appeal. There's no such thing as, you know, artificial intelligence having power on its own. The power it has is the power that we allow people to give it and the power we allow it to have over our lives. And that's, I think, what the danger is, that we are giving the wrong people power to enable their algorithms to do truly dreadful things. So when Stephen Hawking and those people say, oh, well, you know, it's going to be the end of humanity. I and mean, what they mean by that is that, you know, people will be allowed to develop these super complicated and super capable machines, which will then be empowered to take decisions that will affect all of our lives that could then finish us off. And I mean, we've already got, you know, six of the major countries in the world. I think uh, America, UK, Israel, South Korea, China and Russia developing autonomous weapons, which in theory would be able to be they can be very cheaply built. They can be released in enormous forms. They can, provided that there's a network to connect them to each other, they can teach each other. The idea is that they will be released to operate autonomously and decide whom to kill and when and how many people to kill. Well, that would be quite a good way of finishing off quite a few people. Yes. This, there is absolutely no control over that at the moment. Um, there are 28 countries out of however many there are in the world which have signed up to the theory of the possibility of a treaty, but no treaty has as yet been signed. I mean, while people go on developing these weapons, which are completely, I mean, they have weapons now which are absolutely capable of operating autonomously. They don't all operate autonomously at the moment, but they could. Um, so, you know, I mean, but frankly, 
I think that climate change is going to do for us much sooner because the one thing we haven't talked about and the one thing that nobody talks about is the incredible energy budgets of these things. I mean, you look at the Boston Dynamics, whatever that, that and, you know, humanoid robot that kind of runs around and jumps and goes upstairs. Have you seen the size of the battery pack on that thing? <laughs> you know, a human's brain doesn't, a human doesn't need more food when it learns more stuff. You know, when I, when I you know, learn enough maths to pass my GCSE, I didn't start having to eat an extra ham sandwich every day. But machines need more and more processing, more and more storage, more and more capability and more and more electricity, the smarter they get. There's absolutely no way that we can continue to develop these uh, more and more of these machines, connect everything to the Internet of everything um, without frying ourselves to death. So, frankly, I think that's going to come much sooner than the singularity. So that was Sheila telling us about climate change and, again, that the AI that we have relies on a problem that is still very much our own which is how we manage our own climate and that's up to us as a species to sort out very very quickly so our concerns about ai still got to be a little bit further on down the line so what what do you think are the actual issues that we need to get to grips with with ai as a species at the moment what are the problems we're already creating so the main thing that's come up from everything that sheila said and the exhibition and everything we've researched is that all the flaws in AI and robotics are the result of the creator. In each of these scenarios, a flaw implemented by the creator is produced in the results of what the AI or machine does. And we need to get to grips with learning that it's what we input that affects what the output is. And I wanted to specifically look at voice assistants today because... They are perhaps the greatest, most current use of AI that is in every household, increasingly in every household. So, for anyone who doesn't know, artificial intelligence-powered voice assistants are Siri in Apple products, they're Cortana in Microsoft products, it's Alexa Alexa, in Amazon products, and there are a variety of others. It is impressive that the voice recognition has reached the point now where it can identify all the different words that we're using, the different dialects, inflections, the meaning behind that. It has to try and calculate what we actually mean. And the more you use it, the more it learns your daily routine and what you're trying to achieve, and then can better suit that to you. Suggests things based on your preferences. Yeah, your life history. Power of commerce right there. What I thought was important to consider is that every one of these voice assistants that I've mentioned to you now is exclusively female or by default female in how they are delivered to us and presented to us. Alexa cannot be any other gender. Alexa is only female. I'm basing a lot of this evidence off of a really good study that was published by the United Nations. The study examines bias in AI and the effect it can have on society and was funded by UNESCO. The title of the study, if you want to look it up, is I'd blush if I could, which is a response Siri gives to certain remarks, including, Hey Siri, you're a bitch. This response was changed in April 2019 to one of no understanding, but Siri has been in use since 2011, so it took almost eight years before anybody decided they needed to change that. The paper argues that by naming voice assistants with traditionally female names like Alexa and Siri, And rendering those voices as female-sounding by default, tech companies have already preconditioned users to fall back upon old-fashioned, harmful perceptions of women, stereotypes of their roles within society. 
So in general terms, consumer tech is mostly built by male-dominated teams. Hmm. And the companies themselves are male-dominated. The figures, I think it's something like 10 or 12% of all the AI scientists and technicians involved are women on a global scale. Not a lot. Well, there was a really interesting part of the exhibition today, which was about facial recognition software. And there was a black woman who was standing in front of this AI facial recognition software. And it literally couldn't recognize her features as either female or black and as soon as she put on this plain white mask like a theater mask it recognized instantly and then there was you were saying there was michelle obama there was a picture of michelle obama was put to this robot and it couldn't recognize that she was a woman or that she was black yeah it it crazy it diagnosed it thought that oprah winfrey was 90 percent male in some photos it, it couldn't distinguish a majority of famous or non-famous black women as being women and it couldn't figure out that their hair was real it thought their hair was always two pays and the reason this is all happening is because the data that is being input is not varied enough to calculate for all humans so the output is the machine cannot detect certain people because of the bias that is inherent in the scientists and the companies working so this, so, is, this is systemic bias just 101 it's it, you know all of the the data and the inputs are coming from one set of group of people therefore you're not going to have a variety so and, your your the output is going to be as limited as the input and the reason this is significant is in terms of voice assistance in mobile phone usage where it's something like one fifth of all mobile phone searches are done via voice assistance and that number is only increasing and in a few years it could be as high as 50% as more people turn to using them if that's the case and there's a problem in how those voice assistants are presented and have been designed and continue to be designed then those problems are only going to be absorbed by a greater proportion of people most of these voice assistants are exclusively female or as default are female as we suggested the companies say that this is based on academic studies they've done all these studies where they've basically proven that most people want to listen to a female voice. To counter this, there's a whole bunch of other academic studies which suggest that is not true, and that generally people actually prefer the opposite sex to theirs, and also that some people prefer a softer male voice. The point being, you can interpret the data however you want. I really think that with all these voice assistants, it's to make money. So you will pick the one that is maybe most overall profitable. Just a little fun fact to throw out there. Siri is default male in certain languages. Arabic, French, Dutch, British English. If you select those as your languages, your voice will be male. Why and you have to change it. Why do you think that is? Well, before I say why, if the companies say that they've done studies which prove that female voice is the best one to use and it's not a specific gendering issue, it's just kind of happened then does it suggest to you that if they've made certain default settings male that they're actually strategically calculating when and how to use certain voices as in do you buy the argument that they did studies which proved that female voice is what everybody wanted if they then make male voices what certain languages want 
I wouldn't buy that they that that's just random. They must. I'd, I'd say there's probably a reason for that. Yeah, it sounds de- it's designed and strategic. So they're obviously thinking about why certain languages should be dominated by a certain voice as a default setting. Yeah, I think you'd have to find would have to find some research to prove that. But that is on Occam's razor is the most likely. Yes, it's designed that way. I would I would I would say probably Alexa actually self-identifies as female. If you ask Alexa what gender Alexa is, it will say she is female. Even though she has absolutely no gender. Well, no, Alexa, and I've just called her a she as well. It, Ale- it's, it's a Ale- machine. But Alexa has, an, has a gender. The others do not. If you ask Cortana, Siri, etc., they all express responses which indicate that they do not have a gender. And a lot of these programs are actually designed to have very detailed, intense backstories of the essentially the human woman that they're based on where they grew up what they did at school what kind of hobbies they have how they live their lives a counterpoint to this which Sheila raised is that while a lot of voice assistants subservient machines helpers are female all of the machines that are generally dominant informative, decision-making, active, and I guess overall more important, are male. This would include AlphaGo, this would include Watson, and they're designed and given male voices, and they accomplish more tasks, while the female ones are designed to work to support our will and our needs, and answer our beck and call. It's kind of absurd that we would ascribe genders to... Machines, essentially, they, we have no need to do that. Isn't it perhaps what makes us a little bit more afraid as well of artificial intelligence that it seems more human? So we, we were looking at the uncanny valley earlier on, and it's that balance of where something seems human and is identifiable. Do you think it makes us less afraid if we think that it is a person? I think currently we're probably more comfortable with it having a familiar voice however i was reading i think the long-term ramifications that are that maybe not because we're struggling to investigate the difference between the human and the artificial and we're just going to give up knowing that actually that's probably that could be end up being more scary that's probably why people are afraid of ai because they don't they're not able to identify it but then that's a problem with our society is we're afraid of the other in general the paper that was published by the united nations goes on to argue that the tech companies have failed to implement proper safeguards against hostile, abusive, and gendered language. Instead, most assistants, just like Siri, deflect aggression or chime in with sly jokes when faced with aggression. For instance, if you ask Siri to make you a sandwich, the response will be, I can't, I don't have any condiments. The key point about what we're going to come up is nobody wants a voice assistant to be combative. Nobody wants a voice assistant to turn on its master in any way. That will not not sell products. We were chatting to at the exhibition. It was quite combative and aggressive, but it felt like it was being programmed that way, that when you asked it certain things, it was expecting, the programmer had expected you to be horrible to it. So it was horrible back. Whereas, obviously, a big tech firm who wants to sell their product rather than just show off the AI wants it to be very subservient. 
Yes. But it gets weirder. If you ask Siri, who's your daddy? Siri will say, you are. Huh. And in 2017, Quartz investigated how four industry-leading voice assistants responded to avert verbal harassment and discovered that the assistants, on average, playfully evaded abuse or responded positively. The assistants rarely ever gave negative responses or labelled a user's speech as inappropriate, regardless of the cruelty. They had a very large tolerance for sexual advances from men and actually had much less tolerances for sexual advances from women. And obviously this was in 2017 that this data comes from. So there have been some changes. The, the main point that comes out of this is if you have an almost entirely male team building all of these voice assistants and preparing all the possible responses, inputting all of the data involved, but they only have a male perspective of the world. They cannot prepare data to appropriately answer the questions. And the suggestion is that these teams have generally allowed tolerance to creep into the voice assistants. I think it was something like you had to ask the same suggestive demand eight times before it would start telling you to stop. That was kind of a program that was built in. And actually, all it's done is continued to influence systemic issues in our society. There are interesting attempts to generate mass user data. But again, that user data is going to come from people who are able and have the time and the facilities to input user data into an AI, which is not going to be probably, you know, seven tenths of the world's population. So again, it's going to be biased towards you know, the top section, the top echelons of society in terms of fiscally as well as being gender biased as well. Before I get to some of the positives that have been happening in this industry more recently, the overall point about this is that without careful oversight, without planning, without balanced and informed data being input correctly by a balanced team that most represents all the people of the world, you will have a bias product which only continues to support the biases that already exist in society. A, a perfect example of this, which I researched, whereby if you don't input the right amount of data, it means you don't get the right result, is that Microsoft developed a chatbot that was trained using only Twitter posts. And it had to be pulled after 15 hours of public release and canned because it immediately began referring to feminism as a cult and a cancer and stated that gender equality equals feminism. Holy shit, that's... Because that is what was in the Twitter post that it absorbed. Send us some nice tweets, folks. <laughs> that is... That's nasty. But this can be fixed if we have compassion, knowledge of gender biases and tech expertise and we incorporate these all together. If you fix those gender imbalances in the workplace and in the tech companies, then the science that is produced afterwards will more reflect the greater benefits of society and will actually fight back against those people. It's something like between... It's guaranteed to be at least 5%, but it's believed to be significantly higher percentage of all voice assistant requests that are sexually aggressive every year. I mean, that's a, just a concern about us as a species. We need to have an ethical approach to every facet of life, and that includes AI. And I think 
our approaches to AI come out of our already well-entrenched socio-cultural systems. For me, I say, as I said before, I think the fear is not, we don't need to worry about AI, we need to worry about ourselves. A couple of good points to mention. Uh, Google now refers to its various assistant voice options by characterizing them as colors. The company also rolled out an initiative called Pretty Please, which rewards young children when they use phrases like please or thank you when interacting with their assistant, rather than just shouting at it and getting results. Amazon has also done something very similar, where they try to encourage polite behavior towards Alexa. The fact that we have to implement these changes means that we cannot be trusted to use the technology efficiently, and also that the machines themselves are flawed because they aren't prepared to deal with the wide-ranging complications of human interactions. Well, that raises an interesting point that I think rounds rounds back to where we started at Ghost in the Shell. How do we interact positively with AI so that should it end up generating its own personality, identity, experiences and memories that become this consciousness, how do we want that to be? Do we want that to be a positive thing or do we want it to be an aggressive thing? And that's and that's what we need to decide every day in our lives is how do we want the world to be? And I think that will reflect in our future of AI. If the if if we're doomed by AI, it's because we did it to ourselves. Just if we get there, as uh, Sheila says, maybe climate change will do us in before. Absolutely. Any final thoughts on AI and where we're headed? There's basically just an unfathomable amount of great steps forward that we can do with AI regarding so many areas of our culture, science, and the world, and we need to lean into them. But we also have to greater expand our understanding of AI so that we can actually challenge the corporations and the people that are building them. Because if we can't speak up for ourselves when they aren't representing us or doing the best things for society, then they will have carte blanche to do whatever they want. Yep, I'd agree with that. I actually think that the future for AI could be incredibly positive. I think the the wonderful things it could do. We could mechanize food production. We could take care of humanity's basic needs so that there wasn't this have and have not system that we have where a huge amount of the world's population lives in poverty because they could be provided for by machines, which is, I think, entirely feasible. And it it could take a long way and it would involve a huge change to a lot of our systems of of human existence but actually i think machines could really do an awful lot artificial intelligence could really help us to look after ourselves and the planet and i think if we work in that direction i think there's a lot of positives to be had for all the listeners out there what's your favorite android robot ai i love marvin the paranoid android from hitchhiker's guide would he be beneficial uh, I mean, he's got a big brain, could do a lot of useful things, but probably if there depress was, you. What if there was loads of him and everyone had one? Oh boy, the world would be pretty miserable. <laughs> you know, because I'm British, right? And, uh, you know, I like British humour, it's what I've grown up with. It's my systemic bias that I want Crichton and Marvin, who are classics of British culture. I was thinking about uh, Toasty from Red Dwarf. The talky-talky toaster that yeah. drives everyone nuts. You're a waffle man! That's artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it achieves. Deranged toaster. 
in case you thought we'd forgotten, I do actually have Sound of the Week talking about issues in our society and how we address them. I just want to play a little clip of Donald Trump saying that there was no protest when he visited the UK, followed by some sounds of the protests when he visited the UK. And I didn't see the protesters until just a little while ago, and it was a very, very small group of people put in for political reasons. So it was fake news. Thank you. So that was the sound for this episode. I think enough said. Just some last things we wanted to, because we've been very serious this episode. You know, it's been a lot of brain power for us. So hopefully I haven't been too kind of earnest. And we wanted to give you some of the silliest examples of robots. I definitely would recommend looking at Boston Dynamics robots. They are hilarious. You sent me a video of one of them just completely failing to put a box on a shelf and then just collapsing in a heap. And it's just, it makes you laugh because I think that's, it doesn't look human at all, but you identify with it just identify with failure i think i think as human beings we have a certain appreciation of failure that robots might never have my the neighbor next to my parents house has one of those little rumbers that cuts the lawn it looks like it looks like a, a really old walkman and it just kind of crawls around on the grass and i think it's cutting the grass but it goes very slowly and really doesn't seem worth it there's a there's a cracking youtuber called simone gitz i'm really sorry simone if i pronounced your name wrong but she basically has a YouTube channel dedicated to her building shit robots. And uh, there's a robot that's designed to feed her soup and it just ends up just throwing the soup all over her. It's absolutely amazing. She's hilarious. So definitely, definitely um, go and take a look at her YouTube channel for some amusing robots. Yeah, but it definitely won't make you think that Judgment Day is on the horizon. <laughs> so that's... And I think we've covered an awful lot of AI. So I just want to hand back to Sheila for a final thought. We are extremely clever and all parts of the animal world are extremely clever and uh you know uh, these machines have still got a very long way to go before they're anything like as clever as us but you know if you don't use your senses you lose them so you know my message to everybody is go out and appreciate the body that you've been given look after it use it well that's it for this episode and our discussion of artificial intelligence Thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody who got in touch. And thank you to our guest, Sheila Hayman. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. We hope it's been informative and relatively educational. Uh, Maybe a little bit too serious, but obviously we're trying a lot of different things and we are trying to improve. So if you have any feedback, do let us know. And uh, send us your sounds. If you record any great sounds, you know, we'd love to play your sounds for the week. Respond more to what you said. So thank you to Michaela and to Mike, who were chatting about their bits and bobs about mountains and androids this week. Yep, don't forget to subscribe. If you can subscribe to us, it really helps, actually, because it just helps us to get a little bit further up the charts and get out to more people. If you enjoy what we're doing, it's a little free thing for you in your week. So um, in exchange for, for some entertainment, if if you can do that, that'd be, that'd be delightful of you. We'd really appreciate that. Nice five-star reviews of, just, you know. Find us on Spotify, Acast, iTunes. It's actually going to be Apple Podcasts uh, soon. Uh, this iTunes is being discontinued. So Apple Podcasts, that's that's the main one. That's the critical one, which 90% of podcasts come through. So please, please do give us a, a subscribe on there. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>